Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, we've had quite a few episodes on the Global Medical Device Podcast talking a little bit about COVID and pandemic and impact on the medical device industry. And yeah, this is an, another one of those episodes for sure. This one's got a little bit of a different take on it. We're talking about post-pandemic readiness. And joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast are Steve Needleman and Eric Henry. Uh, these gentlemen are with King & Spalding Law Firm. They have a ton of experience and expertise on submissions and quality systems and remediation. So this is a, a really great episode. Uh, I know maybe I'm biased. Maybe I say that a lot, but I think this is some really good tips and pointers and advice for folks to think about as they prepare for a post-pandemic uh, medical device world. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And, you know, again, folks, this, there's a lot going on in the world. Hopefully, you're all being safe and sound. There's been a lot of impact uh, on the medical device industry with respect to the pandemic and COVID-19. And we've got a couple of experts joining us today uh, from King & Spalding. And we're going to talk a little bit about post-pandemic readiness. And joining me uh, is Steve Needleman. Steve serves as the lead quality systems and compliance consultant to the FDA and life sciences practice team at King & Spalding, specializing in regulatory enforcement and policy matters involving industries regulated by U.S. FDA, where he provides strategic advice, insight, and guidance to the medical device, pharmaceutical, biologics, tobacco, and food industries, Mr. Needleman retired from FDA after a 34-year distinguished career where he served as Deputy Associate Commissioner for Regulatory Affairs and as Chief Operating Officer of the Office of Regulatory Affairs. He also served as the Director and Deputy Director of FDA's Office of Enforcement, where he also presided as Chairman in FDA's Compliance Policy Council. Before joining the Office of Enforcement, Mr. Needleman spent nearly 24 years Throughout the Office of Compliance at the Center for Devices and Radiological Health, he has also served as Vice President of the FDA Alumni Association, twice as a member of the Medical Device Committee at the Food and Drug Law Institute, and as a member of the Editorial Review Board for Medical Device Summit and FDA News GMP publications directed at the pharmaceutical and medical devices industry. Also joining from King & Spalding uh, is a colleague of Steve's is Eric Henry. Eric is a senior quality systems and compliance advisor in the FDA and life sciences practice of the law firm King & Spalding. Eric has 30 years of global leadership and practitioner experience in a variety of quality compliance and project development roles with a specialization in large organizational change and remediation programs, software quality, including cybersecurity, medical device design controls, risk management, audit management, and management controls. Prior to joining King & Spalding, Eric led global technical and quality organizations at Philips, Medtronic, GE, Healthcare, Boston Scientific, and Hologic. So gentlemen, uh, quite a distinguished career for each of you, and I'm, I'm really honored that you were both uh, joining me today. So welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you, John. Yeah, it's great to be here. Now, the I saw an article from um, that each of you contributed to 
talking a little bit about uh, a, a pilot program for uh, virtual inspections for FDA, you know, and med device. And, and that triggered me to reach out. I'm like, I got, I want to learn a little bit more about what's going on. And, and when we, you know, had that first conversation, you know, both of you highlighted, Hey, there's, there's a lot of things that we as an industry need to be doing to prepare for uh, a post, a post pandemic world, you know, what it used to be, but it might, when, when we get out of that post pandemic, it might not be the way it was before the pandemic. So I thought we could explore that a little bit, but Steve, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the current state of FDA inspections, because I got to imagine this has been a really challenging area for FDA in, in recent uh, months. Yeah, it has, John. Uh, you know, most of, if not all of FDA investigators and all of FDA are still working remotely themselves. Um, uh, it, and it has been challenging. Uh, it's been challenging to uh, conduct follow-ups where appropriate, et cetera. Back in uh, July of 2020, FDA did announce that uh, they would begin, uh, they, they established a paradigm for continuing inspections, uh, on-site inspections uh, throughout the country. Um, they, uh, some, some inspections, probably less than 5%, um, have, have resumed uh, since July 20th. Um, clearly, their focus is going to be mission critical. They're not going to be typical surveillance inspections. They're going to be inspections where the agency is determined that they are mission critical. Um, they do a, where they are significant public health issues, where there may be significant or serious complaints that have been brought to their attention. Perhaps pre-approval inspections, especially if they are pandemic-related, um, to verify uh, the validity of data to support submissions. Um, the agency has pretty much left that latitude open for themselves. Um, they, they, they will prioritize when they get back into normal course of business, uh, those that will be compliance follow-up inspections um, will, will probably get the priority first, as well as any pending pre-approval inspections where applications have, have been held up. Um, as I said, they, they have established a paradigm <clears throat> that basically ties the, um, <clears throat> the activity of the pandemic um, in a particular local area. Uh, they took the, the entire country, subdivided it into counties, um, and depending upon whether your county is red, green, or yellow, um, FDA will determine whether or not they feel comfortable sending an investigator who also needs to come from either a red, green, or yellow county and to do an inspection. And obviously, green needs to be green um, for the safety of the investigator as well as the safety of the inspected firm. And you can expect that all the um, there will be a questionnaire in advance of that as well to make sure that um, there are appropriate mitigations in place that your firm, that your firm is operating and not everybody is remote. Um, and that, um, you know, you can expect that full PPE will be expected um, in accordance with CDC guidelines. Wow. That sounds like quite the logistical challenge. Eric, any other thoughts on the, on the inspection side of things? Yeah, I would just say that, um, you know, as, as companies think that, think through the fact that FDA has put a pretty big hiatus on their inspection scheme, uh, we also need to keep in mind the medical device industry in particular that um, a lot of organizations are following the MDSAP or the Medical Device Single Audit Program scheme. Um, and those notified bodies that are using that, uh, that, that are auditing to the MDSAP program 
they, they, they've been doing remote audits for quite some time now through the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, the medical device consortium group that does guidances for the EU and a lot of notified, notified bodies will follow their guidance even outside the EU jurisdiction. Uh, they published a guidance called 2020-4 where they list four different circumstances where um, uh, organizations under MDSAP or under um, notified body jurisdiction uh, can have remote audits with you know, surveillance audits, recertification, change notifications, and then if you're changing notified bodies. Um, and I mentioned that here with relative to the FDA because as many folks who are in the MDSAT program know, the FDA has sort of advocated um, uh, the, the inspection uh, program that they normally would pursue for companies to the MDSAT program, if it, especially if in, in the cases of routine inspections. So even if you don't get an FDA ins an inspection, um, you may still be getting those MDSAP audits, um, and the FDA would then use the results of that to, um, to drive further action on their part. And the um, I, I know the uh, MDSAP program has been gaining in popularity here in the United States, um, and, it's, and if folks will provide a link to the 2020-4 uh, document that Eric referenced in the text that accompanies the podcast. Um, but I assume, though, that you know, even if the inspection is virtual uh, through this program, that you know, it still you know, holds buster with FDA? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The MDSAP program results would still be considered adequate for uh, routine inspections. Um, again, there's a lot of circumstances where the FDA would not accept those results, you know, for cause inspections, pre-market inspections and things of that nature. But um, uh, as far as I've seen so far, there's no indication the FDA would stop accepting uh, MDSAP audit results uh, in lieu of routine inspections just because they're remote. Yeah, let me, can I, can I just yeah. add just a thought For to sure. that is, you know, keep in mind the EU and Great Britain, uh, they're not part of the MedSAP program. And, you know, they are conducting, I've had conversations with MHRA and others, uh, they are conducting uh, virtual audits, whether you want to call them remote audits or virtual audits. They continue to be ongoing in Europe. And um, so your notified body inspections, you can expect will continue as well as the MedSAP audits. Yeah, Greenlight Guru, we've had some custom, quite a few customers actually who uh, you know, are in the ISA 1345 certification going through it or uh, you know, going through the surveillance or what have you. So quite a few of our customers have been going through those remote virtual audits as well. So it does seem to be a thing. Um, Steve, I was talking to a colleague uh, yesterday or, or recently, <clears throat> or actually had an acquaintance. I guess he'd, we don't work at the same company, but I've known him for many years. And we were chatting a little bit about um, the impact EUA has had on FDA. Now, uh, I know the review side and the inspection side are, are you know, different parts of the house, uh, different sides of the house in FDA. But you know, I think he said something like there have been like 5,000 EUA submissions uh, sent to the to FDA and something like 600 of them had been granted and that sort of thing. But you mentioned a moment ago the, that some of the EUAs that are being submitted require pre-approval pre inspection um, before, you know, they're able to, to go forward. So, you know, I, I got to imagine just the whole EUA process is, you know, it's it's not new per se, but at least in my lifetime, I don't recall a time where EUA has been so popular and prevalent. This is, has probably created a lot of noise uh, across all parts of FDA. Yeah, you know, so you got there are two authorizations that FDA uses under their authorities under Section 564 of the Act. One is for emergency use authorizations or EUAs, 
And these are these authorized firms to use uh, to manufacture and distribute unapproved products um, due to the uh, to, to address the, um, the the declaration of emergency that was declared by the secretary. Um, EUAs have uh, been very widely used, as you note. There have been a, quite a number of, of applications, um, and I believe the agency has has approved like you indicated, over 500. Many of them were for PPE because initially everybody was caught short with, uh, with you know, 95 masks and, um, and so, and other protective gear and were being manufactured by, manu- by and, and were able to substitute those masks that were similar to, to the uh, kind that FDA would expect and have cleared as class two devices as alternates and and has subsequently enhanced that list of firms that are now manufacturing K95 masks and other masks um, that can be used in in suitable situations. Um, And and so a lot of them were PPE oriented. A lot of them though were also for in vitro diagnostics, which we can't forget our medical devices. And these are not only the diagnostics for um, diagnosing COVID, um, one of which was just approved yesterday for home use, for example, um, that you will be able to buy in the pharmacy without a prescription. Um, but others, uh, other side of it as well is, you know, obviously um, detect detection ability, whether it be a rapid detection test or the full-blown um, evaluation that takes uh, a little bit longer. Um, so there's been a lot of use of EUAs. The other side of authorizations are what they call 564A authorizations, and that enables a firm to manufacture an approved device, an otherwise clear device, uh, that does not have a full-blown quality system in place, such as, for example, those situations where a manufacturer needed to enhance its manufacturing capacity by engaging another unrelated firm that was not typically a medical device manufacturer uh, to, to manufacture and enhance the ability of, of meeting the demand. And those firms, while they had to provide some level of a quality system, they, didn't, they weren't quality system compliant. Um, and these are the concerns that Eric and I have going forward because at some point, there's a light at the end of the tunnel now that vaccines have been approved. And we, we want to make sure firms are ready that at some point these EUAs and 564As might go away. And, uh, you know, what where does that leave your firm? Have you been collecting data? Have you been establishing, working towards establishing a quality system? Or are you going to decide to just leave the industry? Yeah. I mean, so an example, let me unpack uh, some some of that uh, a little bit more. So an example, I think, of a 564A, I guess you can confirm if I'm thinking the right thing, like ventilators, uh, there were some, uh, you know, early on in the pandemic, uh, uh, some automotive manufacturers that were jumping in to help and and they had the capacity to manufacture ventilators. I'm guessing that that automotive company would be an example of a 564A? Yeah, that was, well, they used the Defense Authorization Act for that. Okay. But yeah, that would be that would be a good example if if it was if it wasn't you if it wasn't authorized through that act. The, obviously, Ford Motors doesn't Ford Motor Company doesn't have or Tesla yeah. doesn't have, <laughs> you know, the medical right. device quality system in accordance with 21 CFR Part 820. But there are equivalent quality systems that are used in the automotive industry 
that at least provided an, an, uh, an equivalent overview um, capability to have a quality system in place, conduct investigations, have CAPA systems, et cetera. So those, those were the type of authorizations that FDA right. was facing as well. Okay, terrific. And you know, to your point, I, I, I also share some of your concern. I mean, I know we've uh, had quite a few folks reach out to us who are jumping into the, the EUA fray, so to speak, and you know, they're not med device companies. They never have been. And, and you know, in, in some cases, I, I think they're, uh, I'm not sure if their interests, well, we'll leave that aside, but, but for those who do have an interest in, in altruism is at play here where they, you know, they have capabilities, technologies, et cetera, and they're jumping in and into the EUA process and becoming a medical device, you know, we're trying to say, hey, folks, you've got to build this quality system. You've got, you've got to be prepared because one day, none of us are going to know exactly when uh, we're, we're going to be out of this, this pandemic. And, um, you know, the, you, you can't just keep that EUA clear device uh, on the market without, you know, taking the necessary provisions. So, Eric, what are, uh, maybe, you know, elaborate on some, some planning and some next steps for folks that might be in that position. Yeah, it's a really good point, John. I, um, we work with clients all the time that are, you know, either new to this space or getting into this space um, as a result of um, uh, the COVID crisis. And um, there's really three big elements that we we have to focus people's attention on. One of them is, is either build or remediating that QMS, right? And if you're going to build a remediated QMS, we help them. Um, and even if you don't get external help, find some internal resources to put a good plan together for that that program uh, where you're doing things like gap analysis, um, looking at how you fill those gaps, prioritizing those quality system elements according to uh, the level of risk. And it can obviously safety risk being one of the primary components of risk assessment, but also business risk and compliance risk and other things. Uh, but put that program together, put a schedule to it. Um, and then prepare for an eventual inspection, right? At some point, these are gonna these are going to resume, and uh, uh, so whether it's just routine inspections that are going to pick up, or, or for cause, or, or things related to new products that you you have in the market, and that'll particularly be the case if the you know sort of the third item that we have people looking at comes to pass, which is you decide that after this crisis is over, you're going to continue to manufacture that product. Um, so. In the cases, especially as you mentioned, of automotive companies doing some manufacturing, if they decide they want to keep doing that, for instance, um, and uh, uh, they want to they want to keep manufacturing that, and maybe even want to start a, you know, some of these companies that decide, hey, you know, we kind of like being in the medical device business, we're going to start up some medical device practice uh, and, and business unit of our own and keep that, that going. Well, now's the time to be collecting data and doing the work that you need to support. Uh, a submission for clearance or approval of that product. Uh, don't wait until this is over. In fact, um, you know, these EUAs are only good as long as the FDA says they are. And they're not required to provide notice before putting out, um, uh, putting out a statement that these EUAs are canceled. Now, they've agreed, based on the press we've read so far, that they are going to provide notice. So, once they do, our guess right now is you're looking at maybe three to four months uh, after that notice that you'll have time to, you know, either get that submission ready, get it in, in place, uh, maybe even preempt that notice with your own submission so that you can be, you won't have any interruption in manufacturing. Uh, but in the case, of, but if you're going to do that, 
you have to have the quality system built or remediated to support that as well. So those three components are huge as people get ready to come out of this, build or remediate the QMS, uh, get ready for that inspection. There's a lot of inspection prep uh, things that people that have never been in this industry uh, uh, aren't even prepared for at this point in terms of staffing, process, infrastructure, tools, um, and, and obviously doing dry runs to make those inspections go smoothly uh, and, and probably getting some uh, outside help either as contractors or staff or consultants um, to be able to uh, help them through that process. So um, it, it's, a, it's a much bigger deal than I think, as, as you stated, companies are, are um, anticipating right now uh, yeah. once the EUAs are up. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you, you said that, you know, when FDA, uh, you know, says we're not doing this anymore, we're re- revoking, I don't know if that's the right word, but but for now, I think that it gets the context, revoking the EUAs, but you'll have a three to four month window. If companies are thinking, oh, we'll just wait until that, that happens, a few months is plenty of time. Um, it's probably not. So I think your your words uh, of advice, Eric, are, are words that folks that are in that EUA position, who are especially those who are new to med device, but even those who are, have EUAs and they are med device companies, uh, should heed. I mean, three to four months uh, that that's may not be enough time to prepare everything that you need to. So now is time is the time to start preparing for that, so that you know you're in a good position. Yeah. Uh, yeah so John, three to four months would be. I, in an ideal circumstance, after you've already done all the work to prepare a submission, have already submitted it, three to four months might right. get you an, a 510K approval. Right. But knowing there's going to be this massive influx of submissions around that time yeah. and realizing, too, that you'll have to build everything to support that submission and the inspections and the quality system reviews that, that will accompany it, you need way more than that. And you should have already been well underway by the time yeah. that notification is given. That's a really good point. So when we say three to four months, that means that you have to have, you know, 510K clearance or or a PMA approval or whatever the case may be in that period of time, not just submitting those uh, regulatory submissions, correct? Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So folks, yeah. <laughs> In my experience, a 510K, I mean, and there's statistics from FDA on this, and current statistics are skewed a little bit because of, of the pull that EUA has had on FDA reviewers. But, you know, a typical 510K, you know, you can expect it to take several months to go through the process all by itself. So if you're waiting to that time to prepare your submission, it's too late. It's just too late. Um, there may, there, we, we, we don't know exactly how they're going to spin this. Yeah. <laughs> But there, there could be a possibility, um, especially perhaps for lower risk 510K devices, that by the end of the three or four months, you need to have a submission into the agency. Um, so we, we, need to, we need to be prepared for both options, one of which having your device cleared versus you need to have that submission in at the date that the EUA or 564A is terminated. Right. We, we don't know yet what they're going to say, but there is, I mean, there is, it's going to place a tremendous onus on them as well, resource wise. And mm-hmm. so we don't know what they're going to say, uh, sure. but we, you need to be prepared uh, for the, for the option that Eric is, has described. Yeah. All right. Well, um, f- folks, let me take a, a brief pause and remind you that I'm talking with Steve Needleman and Eric Henry. Uh, both gentlemen are with King and Spalding and part of their FDA and life sciences practice. Steve, Steve, do you mind elaborating a little bit more about King and Spalding? I mean, I'm familiar with your firm. Uh, you know, I think 
probably many folks who are in the medical device industry are probably familiar with your firm, but I, I guess elaborate a little bit on the types of, of services and ways that you help companies uh, with you know their medical device uh, practice and needs. Oh, thanks, John. Uh, King & Spaulding has enormous depth in the FDA and life science uh, arena. Um, while Eric and I are consultants, and we have others as well, um, including a, a world-renowned cardiologist to assess the health risks, um, and we have pre-market consultants. We are obviously not attorneys in this law firm. Most of our colleagues are. And our colleagues who are attorneys have a tremendous amount of depth in um, assisting firms in all aspects of FDA and um, Medicare, Medicaid, um, required uh, requirements. Um, we assist in the pre-market arena, post-market arena. We assist with mergers and acquisitions. We assist with, obviously, warning letters, injunctions, responding to untitled letters, assisting with FDA behavioral issues. Um, we really provide a full-service approach to everything that can affect any manufacturer of any FDA-regulated industry, whether it be a medical device, pharmaceutical, combination product, biologics vaccine, we've assisted with, with the vaccine uh, development as well, um, in tobacco industries, food industries, imports, um, we really provide a full service. The amount of depth, the ability to say that we have four FDA um, attorneys from the Office of Chief Counsel help enormously with just as people like myself are very familiar with FDA's expectations, FDA's verbiage, um, FDA's what, knowing what FDA is looking for um, is really very helpful as we as we assist firms with compliance plans, assisting them in enforcement issues, compliance issues, or proactively assisting them in assuring that they're, um, which we always hope is the best approach, that their quality systems are appropriate um, and that they can get their 510Ks through PMAs, et cetera. All right. Thank you for elaborating on that. And folks, I want to remind you too, Greenlight Guru, we're also here to help. Uh, Greenlight Guru has the only medical device quality management system software platform on the market today. It's been designed specifically and exclusively for medical device companies. So you know, 21 CFR 820, 13.45, EUMDR, 14.971, Part 11, all of those things are pre-baked, if you will, into our software platform and and our product offering so that you know, we're trying to make this as simple as it can be, keep you know, the guardrails in place so that you, know, you know how to navigate you know, establishing your quality system in a way that, that allows you to meet the intent and, and comply with the applicable regulations and streamlining those workflows for you and your team. So we have workflows for managing design controls, risk, document management, change management, and quality events, things like CAPAs and complaints and non-conformances and audits. So if I would encourage you to, to check out www.greenlight.guru to learn a lot more about the software platform. And if you're interested in learning more about how we might be able to help, request a demo. And we would love to have a conversation with you and, and see if we might have some products and services that, that can help you with your needs. So again, go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. All right, getting back to the conversation, I've heard this a couple of times now recently. And it was a little bit of a head scratcher the first time I heard it. I, I thought maybe the person misspoke, but you know the, the pre-submission uh, has been a very popular program. I 
you know, in fact, I encourage a lot of medical, you know, just about every medical device company go through a pre-submission uh, because it's a great way to you know, build rapport with FDA, but also, you know, just have an exchange and, and collaboration and communication with FDA. But I heard uh, a couple of times, like I said recently, where pre-submissions have been rejected. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on? So do you, either of you have any color about that? I have to admit, uh, I am not a pre-market guy. Okay. We do have that expertise. Um, so I, it's not really within my wheelhouse. Um, I do know that uh, pre-subs are the way to go. Um, uh, Q-subs, pre-subs, um, these are the, way, the best way to get the, to get the benefit of the agency's thinking before you go too far down the road, uh, only to find you went down the wrong path. But I have to be honest, uh, I, I would be remiss if I tried to portray it as I, I had any current understanding of right. the current status of requests. I, and I, I don't have any statistical uh, uh, evidence to support what you're saying, John, but anecdotally, what I can tell you is that um, those pre-sub meetings have been go- ongoing, but I have heard of some firms where they've either had significant delays in the pre-sub meetings where they've had to cancel them and the FDA has just proposed and, you know, for them to move forward and go ahead and, and let the FDA go through the review process. And primarily the, the reasons given were, were twofold. Number one, as Eve indicated earlier, there's a tremendous resource constraint right now as companies are, are um, the number of companies in this space has now mushroomed uh, as well as the, the number of uh, changed or new products that are uh, being considered for submission, uh, also getting much larger. But also, where in the medical device and pharma space, especially within FDA, it's kind of all hands on deck with COVID work. And so some resources that may have been used for pre-sub meetings are being pulled to do other things and aren't available for that. So that further constrains the resources that a firm may have access to at the FDA. I will just sort of, um, as an as a side note here, and just because this is a topic that comes up in pre-sub meetings a lot, and and John, if you're helping companies with pre-subs, I'm sure you get you give the same advice. Um, these pre-sub meetings, although they are absolutely the way to go, and in a way to make sure that you're going down the right track before you've gone too far, these are not informal discussions with the FDA. Um, and where right. you can get those pre-sub meetings um, executed, and this is just sort of a for what it's worth piece of advice while we're on that topic, this is a, there's no such thing as an off-the-mark, off-the-record conversation during these pre-sub or Q-sub sessions. Uh, so be prepared for them, put the agenda together, do the work, have the right people in the room, and realize that everything that you say um, and everything that they say um, uh, will be part of an official record. Yes. Um, and, and you should be and you should be you should approach the meeting in that context. For sure. I mean, this, this is uh, not just pick up the phone, call somebody at FDA exactly. and say, hey, let's have a conversation. It's, it is there is preparation that's involved. And and while the the uh, feedback that you get from FDA is as technically non-binding, it is a good insight into, you know, the FDA's thinking on your particular product and, and space. So, um, but it is formal. It is a really good point. And, you know, I guess kind of talking about submissions uh, a little bit further. I mean, you know, I mentioned a moment ago that there's been thousands of EUAs that have been submitted to FDA. And and I, to your point, Eric, it, it's kind of all hands on deck. So, you know, that's been the priority and the focus. Um 
you know, obviously there's been a, a, a downstream impact on non uh, EUA types of, of submissions. Uh, I think I've heard some, there have been some significant delays there. And Eric, you um, mentioned a moment ago that, you know, at some point in time, FDA is going to say, all right, we're, we're no longer in a, in a pandemic uh, status here. We're, we're going to stop the EUAs. We're, and, and companies got to prepare their submission and, you know, get in early, get in uh, as, as, you know, get prepared. So anything more that, that you think is really important as far as pragmatic tips and, and pointers and advice for folks on the submission side of things? Yeah, I, I'm, I, and I, I'm sure Steve will echo this. He and I have had a few offline conversations about this, but just collect that supporting data now that you're going to use to support future clearances and approvals. Um, and also file those as soon as possible. Again, don't wait for the, you know, the anticipating a potential heads up from the FDA in time enough to be able to get your submission in and expect it to be reviewed. Uh, even though there are, you know, obviously, you know, what's part of Medufa, there are, there are deadlines that the FDA um, you know, puts on itself to try to get these things done and get these things reviewed. I can't expect with the huge influx of, of submissions that are going to be coming at the last minute from, from, from firms that are unprepared, that they'll be able to meet all of those as they would like. So if you can at all get what you need to do a submission before the, the end has been announced of the EUAs and, and uh, these, QM, these uh, QMS exemptions, do it. Uh, and the last thing I would say, and this may seem like an obvious one, but it, but I know a lot of companies aren't yet there yet. Make sure that you've got your registration and listing in and up to date for your firm and for your site, because if that's not right, uh, that's going to cause problems with both uh, your submission and any subsequent inspections. Yeah, let me let me add let me, let me let me just put some put some context because there's been a lot of good good dialogue from Eric and yourself as well, John. First of all, everybody should realize during an inspection or during a pre-sub meeting or any dialogue with FDA, nothing is off the record. So be mindful of that. Um, they will try, people will try to befriend, befriend you, et cetera. So just keep in mind, nothing is off the record and you should always be, be aware of that. Um, it will be memorial, your conversations will be memorialized in some form if it has any kind of relevance at all. And when you're preparing for a meeting with FDA, as Eric indicated, get your most important message out up front as early on in the meeting as you can, because these meetings are generally time bound. And before you know it, you'll go off on a tangent. There'll be questions that are raised. And the most important issue you want to get to is at the end of your presentation and not at the beginning. So get the big ticket items dealt with up front to make sure that at the end of the day, when you walk away from that meeting, you have the answer to the most difficult situation that you need to deal with so that you make sure that you're on the right track. And to Eric's point, you know, if you're ready to submit a 510K now, get it in now. It's been on FDA's books, not on yours, and it will help uh, in the long run. And it'll also get you uh, earlier on in the queue of getting these things cleared. All the resources right now are primarily focused on COVID. So, so it doesn't hurt to get them in if, if you're intending to stay in the industry or getting the product if it's not already cleared uh, to be cleared. Steve, I think that's such a, a good tip about you know getting your 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 key 
concern or question or, or message out at the front end because, you know, you know, like a pre-sub meeting, I, I think if I recall, I could be off a little bit, but you know, it's like an hour, you know, you don't right. have a lot of time. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've seen, I've worked with some companies who are preparing a pre-submission and they have, you know, hundred slides in their slide deck. I'm like, that no. is, you're not going to get through that. No in. way. That's no right. way. Don't, don't spend a lot of time on your firm's history on all your other yeah. products. Don't spend your time. Get to the point. Chit-chat. Get yeah. to your point early on because these, for these meetings have a tendency <clears throat> To go off on a tangent, somebody will raise a question. Before you know it, you didn't even get to the to the to the third yeah. slide. Yeah, and and so, then the problem you end up with, right, is that um, uh, you know, as you, as we talked about previously, with the FDA being as resource constrained as they are, getting the meetings on their calendar can seem like you've won the lottery. And the last thing you want is at the end of that, you haven't gotten the 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 viewpoint from the FDA on the real issue that was concerning you the most and now you're trying to reschedule and you just have to roll the dice all over again to see if you can even get on the calendar um, to get another pre-sub meeting scheduled and frankly you know I've heard I've heard you know FDA folks on the phone with some of these pre-sub meetings when you sort of end it with a whimper and you haven't gotten everything out of it you wanted and you try to reschedule they start to get a little impatient, right? Because their time's valuable, uh, your time is valuable, and and you don't have time to waste on chit chat. Yeah, right. absolutely, absolutely. Gentlemen, as we wrap up the conversation today on on post pandemic readiness, are there any other tips, pointers, uh, things you want to highlight or reemphasize uh, before we wrap things up today? Um, let me let me just speak to one one thing that that people may or may not be considering, but I know is very important, especially for those that may be new to this industry, and that's people. Think about the staffing needs that you're going to need post pandemic, right? Look at you know in the quality space, look at production quality, design quality, supplier quality, software quality, internal audit, doc control, all those different things. Post market surveillance, risk management, and you may have a few people if you're a small firm that can wear multiple hats. Um, uh, but you need to make sure that all of these roles are accounted for in your organization to support the quality system that you're going to have to either build or remediate to support uh, either new products or an expanded uh, array of products to, to handle uh, the post-pandemic world you're going to live in. And I would also say that because these inspections will resume at some point in person, if you're not accustomed to that kind of, of uh uh, interaction with the FDA. Um, you need to do these mock inspections as much as you can, practice, 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 and make sure that you have the people in place to support that. Those front room folks, the scribes, back room folks, subject matter experts, quality reviewers, all those people need to be in place um, and whatever tools and, and process and mechanisms you're going to use to support those. Those are all things that you'll need to do to prepare. Um, and again, you should be doing that now. Uh, so that when these inspections resume, uh, you aren't trying to figure it out as you go along. And, and I, I think it really does boil down both in terms of executing the QMS and preparing for inspection, having these roles defined, um, and having people identified and prepared to assume them uh, post-pandemic. Yeah, I'd like to add to that if I could, that, you know, if you're if you're currently in the medical device industry, you may have been manufacturing other products pre-pandemic, and you've now introduced new products, make sure the procedures and policies in place are being followed for the new products. Uh, do a gap analysis. Uh, you know, assure that the, the guys, the people that are making the new products are really following 
what you've said you have in place for the rest of your firm. If you're new to the medical advice industry and you have an, a, a, another quality system, you really should as well, as Eric said, do a gap analysis, um, put procedures in place to make sure you're compliant with 820, 21 CFR Part 820, because at the end of the day, that's the expectation. Um, the, 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 um, you know, the freebie is going to go away at some point. Um, make sure you have the right people in place. Make sure, you know, as, as all of you guys are aware, those of you in the medical device industry, management controls are, are critical to the success of your quality system. Make sure you have the right people in place. Make sure, as Eric said, people may wear multiple hats. Just make sure the person who's head of ops is not also the head of quality yeah. because there's a natural conflict there. Um, you need somebody in quality who could just, just say no. And, um, you know, they have to they have to play that role um, of oversight. So uh, you really need to conduct these mock audits. Um, I know we we currently do them for other firms. We do them for our clients. We routinely do them. Others do it as well. Um, but it's really a good practice for you to get into um, to conduct that and, and, and make sure you're your your inspection ready at the end of the day. Get those applications in for collecting data uh, to support your product. Um, and, you know, hopefully we all, we all want everybody to be successful at the end of the day. Gentlemen, thank you so much. And certainly folks, uh, heed the advice that Steve and, and Eric are provided or have provided throughout this conversation. And, and if you'd like to, to learn more about how King and Spalding can be a resource to help you with all of the things that we've talked about, I would encourage you to reach out to them. Uh, website's pretty easy, kslaw.com, kslaw.com. And, um, you know, certainly you can reach out to, to Eric or and Steve, and, and they'd be happy to provide or connect you with the right resources to help you navigate, you know, this these processes of being inspection ready, making sure you're doing the right thing from a submission standpoint. Uh, again, Steve Needleman, Eric Henry, King and Spalding. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being guests on the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John, and happy holidays to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> and as I mentioned before, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you as well. We we have the, the only medical device quality management system software platform on the market. You know, it helps improve your efficiency. You know, in the case of remote audits, we have customers who are going through that each and every week now. Uh, so uh, certainly, you know, as you're remote and virtual, it's certainly a resource to help you. And, you know, even in normal times, it's a resource to help you. So be sure to go check out www.greenlight.guru to learn more. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the number one podcast in the medical device industry, the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you. Continue to spread the word to your friends and colleagues. And we'll catch up with you again real soon.